morning. And good morning to our viewers online as well. First off, uh, Mason did an awesome job last week, yeah? yeah? It's a blessing having uh, people around here um, who can, we can hear God's word filtered through, um, besides me, right? Um, I am a big fan of a team approach. I think hearing God's word filtered through um, the lives and the, and the hearts of people of varying ages and, and varying places in life, I think, gives us a, a better image of, of, of God rather than just through one person. So I, I, I value um, people like Mason coming up and, and sharing God's word. So, uh, so this morning, I want to start off by talking about something that uh, seems sort of random, but I'm going to connect it back to Jonah here in a bit. Um, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, which of course was the dawning of the era of video games. Um, I remember playing Pac-Man, Galaga, Donkey Kong, Dig Dug, Tempest. Um, In the early 80s, I think I was about nine or 10 at the time, um, I actually developed a hack um, to be able to play an unlimited number of video games in the arcade. Um, I pulled a string from my sock, right? It's kind of a stretchy, springy string. And uh, I taped a quarter to the end of it. And I put it in the, in the coin mech. And I would just go ding, 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 ding. And I'd rack up to the max, which is about 100 credits. And, literally, and then I would just drop, drop it in uh, and just play, play all day. Um, eventually, they, the arcades wisened up and they put a razor blade in the coin mix. Um, I know this because in high school, uh, in the late 80s, I worked, like one of my part-time jobs was working for a video arcade, uh, Aladdin's Castle. Anyone heard of Aladdin's Castle? Yeah? So I had a blue vest, kind of like this, (laughs) and I had a a chain, and then a whole bunch of keys. You know, I was that guy, right? And so when... uh, People would call. This is how I would answer the phone. Aladdin's Castle, home of the no-hassle birthday. This is Roger. How may I help you? Because we did birthday parties too, right? Um, So one of the benefits of this job, working at the arcade, was uh, when I wasn't working, they let me come in and play for free. Um, And so I became an expert at this game called Street Fighter II. Um, Nobody could beat me. Like, you could pick any of the characters for me to play, and I would still whoop you, right? Um, So that was in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, These days, I occasionally play video games with my son, but he is so good, he beats me every single time, Um, except at Street Fighter (laughs) 2. There's a genre of video game I want to talk about, uh, though, that's been around since the early 80s. They're called God Games. Um, there have been several of these released over the years, but the one I want to talk about uh, is one called Pocket God. Um, it's on a- iPhone, Android, you can play it on Facebook. Um, so here's a description of the game. Pocket God is a God game in which the player takes the role of an omnipotent being who rules over an island and controls everything. The primitive islanders known as pygmies are subject to the player's God 
powers. These range from benevolent powers, such as giving the islanders a fishing rod, to destructive, for example, summoning a hurricane, or simply entertaining, such as levitating the pygmies. So built-in features of the iPad and iPhone are used, such as the accelerometer to simulate gravity and earthquakes. So literally, you're playing this game on your iPad, and you can go, you know, and watch them, ah, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you can throw islanders into volcanoes. You can use islanders as shark bait or bowl for islanders with a large boulder. Okay, Pocket God was ranked number one on iTunes for over six months. So maybe some people play this game as a benevolent deity, um, but I suspect that most of the people playing it are acting out their what-if-I-was-God fantasy and having fun punishing and killing fake people without any consequences. So on that note, uh, when my son, who's currently 17, when he was eight, um, I posed this question to him. Um, we both know that God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's all-loving. So the fancy words to describe this are that God is omnipotent, he is omniscient, and he is omnibenevolent. Okay. So the question I asked him was, if you could uh, be either all-powerful, all-knowing, or all-loving, which one would you choose? And he thought about it a bit, and he said, uh, I would choose all-powerful, but then I would use my power to help people. Um, and so I tried to explain this idea that while power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely, Right? So it's a theme we find throughout literature, um, throughout culture. Um, any of you remember the old black and white TV show, Twilight Zone, with Rod Serling? I, I, I loved watching that show when I, was, when I was growing up. So there's an episode on there called It's a Good Life, and uh, it's from 1961, uh, where this six-year-old boy has godlike powers. And everyone in his family and everyone in this small town that he lives in um, is afraid of him because whenever he gets angry, he does bad things to people. So I described this episode to Aiden. Uh, we decided that if you had God's power, you would really need God's heart. So then I asked him, so what about being all-knowing? Um, and we decided that it would be too tempting to use the knowledge for our own gain or, you know, maybe even hurt someone, right? So then I asked him, so what if you were given God's heart, like you were all-loving, omnibenevolent? Like what if you were suddenly full of as much grace and love and forgiveness as God? And he agreed that it'd be better to have God's heart than to have his power or his knowledge. And really, that's what God wants for us anyway, right? Is to have more of his heart, right? Mason mentioned last week at the end of his message this idea about downloading God's heart. So today, we're continuing our series on the Old Testament prophet Jonah. And we're going to see today that it is God's grace that leads us to have more of God's heart. And it is with more of God's heart that we're then led to extend God's grace to others. We end up being this, this kind of conduit of God's grace. 
So one of the things I love about God is that he uses messed up, broken people to do the work of extending his kingdom here on the earth. Right? I've mentioned this before. So as we read, the, read through the Bible, one of the things we, we see is that uh, these people that, that God used, uh, most of them are pretty messed up. Right? So here's a few. Maybe you didn't know this. Um, Noah got drunk. Remember that? Uh, Jacob was a liar and a deceiver. Moses was a murderer. He, he killed a man. Uh, Rahab, who was in the lineage of Jesus Christ himself, was a prostitute. Uh, David was a murderer and a, uh, an adulterer. Elijah was suicidal. Um, Isaiah, I don't know if you know this, Isaiah preached in the nude for three years. Now, he did it because God told him to, but um, that's one of those little-known facts. Um, King Saul himself prophesied in the nude. Look that one up. It's 1 Samuel 19, 23 and 24. I wrote it down. You can look it up. Uh, Peter denied Christ. Martha was a warrior. Mary Magdalene supposedly was possessed by demons. Paul himself, who wrote most of the New Testament, was a murderer as well, responsible for the deaths of numerous Christians before he himself became a follower of Jesus Christ. And the list goes on, right? So many of these people were full of contradictions, and they definitely were not perfect. But it was God's amazing grace that kept them going. And it's in this sermon series we've seen, we've seen that grace pursuing Jonah through the storm, through the captain, through the sailors, through the whale. We saw God's grace give Jonah another chance. We saw God's grace poured out on the repentant Ninevites. Now, if I were God, I probably would have given up on Jonah. Um, but again, the grace of God is beyond our understanding. Um, every time we try to draw the line of where, like how far God's grace can go, um, God broadens it even further. God's grace doesn't just color between the lines, it colors the whole page. The fact that he is omnibenevolent, all good, all loving, means that God's love meter is like this, okay? So if my love is about an inch and the most loving person I've, I've ever met is maybe a foot, um, God's love goes to the moon and back. Like that's how loving it is. And God's grace too is bigger than we can possibly imagine. And we see evidence of this as he pursues a self-righteous, um, frankly, a smug and religious prophet. His capacity for grace is greater than our capacity for sin. So let's talk a little bit about why God extends his grace to us. Of course, of course he loves us. Um, he wants us to live in relationship with him. He wants us to worship him. He wants us to to submit our lives to him. Um, but is there something else behind that grace? One of the things we see in Jonah 4 is that God extends grace to us to reveal the condition of our heart. So Jonah tells the Ninevites that unless they repent, Nineveh will be overthrown in 40 days. 
And so they immediately begin repenting. And uh, everyone from the king to the commoner, even the livestock, join in. Um, they are fasting, they're covered in, lo- in sackcloth, and then God's anger ceases. God's anger ceases, but Jonah's has just begun. He's about ready to explode in anger. Okay? So li- verse 1, chapter 4, Jonah literally reads, but Jonah was deeply offended and he was burning hot in anger. Like the Hebrew word there is chara. It is to burn hot with anger. So Jonah knew when God had called him the first time to go to Nineveh that there was a possibility that they might repent. And knowing God's character, that he would show them mercy. And Jonah didn't want anything to do with that. So he ran, right? Jonah cannot stand the fact that God is good, that he is a God of grace and mercy. Essentially, Jonah says, "Um, I knew that even though they're evil and they deserve to be wiped out, that you would forgive them. Just kill me now. I'd rather die than to see these people forgiven. Do you know who Jonah is like? He's like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son um, who loved grace for himself but was unable to show that grace to his brother. Now notice, notice the irony here. This is, this is fascinating. Um, God had saved Israel from Egypt. He miraculously delivered them from Pharaoh and the Egyptians through the Red Sea. You know that story. God cared for them. He loved them. He provided for them. He freed them from bondage. And how did Israel thank God? It says in Exodus 32, 8. It says, how quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down, a gold, melted down gold and made a calf, and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They're saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then God still um, forgave them. People of Israel owed their existence to the fact that God who was who he was and had spared them time and again of his wrath and he extended grace to them. What about Jonah himself? Why is he alive? He's alive because God is who he is and God extended his grace to him. But Jonah cannot accept a God who just throws away grace to anybody who asks for it. Essentially, he had become self-righteous. He thought that God loved Israel because of who Israel was. God loved Israel because of who God is, a God of grace. So back to the question, why does God extend grace to us? Yes, he loves us, but there's a purpose behind the blessing. He does it so that we can then be a blessing and extend it to those who need it. Listen to Psalm 67, verse 1. It says, may God be merciful and bless us. May his face smile with favor on us. Right? We love love for God to bless us, but why does he bless us? Um, The answer is in the next verse, verse 2. May your ways be known throughout the earth, your saving power among people everywhere. 
God extends his grace to us so that we can then extend that grace to those who need it. But often we don't. Why? So I want to talk about uh, several of the barriers that can keep us from extending grace to others. Um, Here's the first one. So when we choose comfort over conviction. So after Jonah throws a little bit of a fit, God asks him, uh, do you have any right to be angry? And Jonah doesn't answer. He He just walks away without answering the question. We can be like Jonah. Um, God points out an area that we need to grow in. He convicts us of an issue. Um, He calls us to change something in our lives. And what do we often do? Um, We say, I'll think later about that after I do this thing right here. And we find a more comfortable place to be. So Jonah makes a a shelter, right? Probably with with leaves and branches. And he sits outside of Nineveh, and he just waits to see if God will destroy it. So notice the contrast here. These these contrasts are are fascinating. So inside the city walls, the king of Nineveh sits in great discomfort. He's, He's wearing sackcloth covered in ashes. He is hoping that just maybe his city will be spared. And then Jonah, meanwhile... Um, sits in silence outside the city walls waiting for it to be destroyed. Now, it's getting pretty hot out there as Jonah's sitting there under the sun. Um, Jonah's homemade shelter starting to fail him. What does God do again? Um, He pours out grace on Jonah and provides shade through a vine. Like literally, a thing just kind of grows up over him. Um, So even here in the midst of Jonah's self-righteous anger and his silence toward God, God responds with grace. And Jonah's blind to it. He doesn't even see this as an act of grace. As a matter of fact, when the worm comes and eats the vine, Jonah complains about it. So a second barrier that keeps us from extending God's grace is when we are blind to God's grace in our own lives. So when are we blind to God's grace in our own lives? How often do we take God's grace and his blessings for granted? If we live in the United States, which we do, um, we are wealthy beyond what most of the rest of the world dreams of. Like, our income is higher than 99% of the rest of the world's population on average. Um, It's hard to remember that when we're spending time Uh, with people who may have as much as we do or more than we do, right? You may not have everything that you want, um, but most of us have a place to live, a bed to sleep in, clean water to drink, enough food to eat several times a day, enough clothes, right, for at least a week before you have to do laundry. Um, Think about it. What was considered a luxury... um, Only 10 to 20 years ago, most people have now a TV, cell phone, computer. What other blessings do you have? Friends, family, your health, a job, car, education, 
your salvation, your church family? Are there any other ways God has extended his grace to you? How about the simple pleasures in life? The sun, the rain, music, good food, a cup of coffee, family pet, taking a walk in the evening, the fact that we can walk. His fingerprints are everywhere in our lives. Do we see it? If we don't see it, how are we going to help others see it? So I read a book once called um, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It was, it was made into a movie later. Um, the author of the book had been the editor-in-chief of French L magazine. So like that fashion magazine L. I guess there's a French version of that. Um, so it was the 1995. He was 44 years old. He had two children. Um, he was known for his sharp wit. He was known for his sense of style and his passion. Um, but by the end of the year, he was also the victim of a rare kind of stroke to his brainstem. And after 20 days in a coma, he awoke in a body that pretty much had stopped working. Um, only his left eye functioned. He could, like, he could see and he could blink. Um, he was able to, to write this book about his experience with locked-in syndrome, um, where your mind is perfectly fine, but your body uh, is just not functioning by dictating a word at a time. Like literally someone would sit there and go A, B, C, D, E. And when it came to the letter, uh, he'd blink his eye. He wrote the whole book like that. So you wouldn't think, you wouldn't think it, uh, but this book is very optimistic. Um, there are a few moments of self-pity, right? Um, but most of the book is filled with the author's hopes, his dreams, and fond memories that he's had. The author died two days after the book was published. Um, but the book he left behind makes us never ever want to take for granted anything, right? None of the, the blessings and the grace and the things that God has just poured out on us. And that literally every day of our lives we just most of us, I'll just speak for myself, I take for granted. So the third barrier that can keep us from extending grace to others is this. It is when our love is misplaced. So God is also showing here how he's really most concerned about himself and about his own comfort. We can spend an inordinate amount of time uh, an inordinate amount of money and energy focused on things that, um, in the end, just provide temporary comforts and pleasures. Um, I know, I'll speak for myself, I, over the course of my life, have probably wasted thousands of hours and thousands of dollars on things that, in the end, didn't matter at all. Do I have a witness? Anybody here? Right? So... Is that what life is about? Worm-eaten plants? Fleeting pleasures? Uh, Jonah's love is misplaced here. 
So here's the primary way our love is different from God's love. Um, God always values people most. There's a saying that in God's city, the inhabitants love people and they walk on gold. While in man's city, the inhabitants love gold and they walk on people. So here's a great question to ask ourselves. Do, do I value what God values? Or is my love focused on the wrong things? So we see here that Jonah was more concerned about this plant dying and his own comfort than he was concerned about 120,000 people being destroyed. God's argument here uh, is amazing. He's putting, he's putting a spotlight on his own heart and on Jonah's. God is saying, you valued this plant. Essentially, your concern was for your own comfort, the shade that the plant brought you. However, should I not put more value on these 120,000 human lives who really don't even know who I am? Your concern was out of self-interest. My concern is out of genuine love. God wants us to know how much he values people above everything else. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 26. He said, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? And of course, God shows how much value he puts on human life by sending his son to die on a cross on their behalf, right? Shouldn't God show compassion for something that costs him everything? So notice the abrupt ending of the book of Jonah. Um, God ends with a question. He says, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? God is essentially saying, um, look at my heart of compassion for those who need me. He's saying, don't be so self-centered. Don't be so self-absorbed. Join me in sharing my love to those people who need me. I love them so much, and I want them to come to know me. God is challenging Jonah to let go of, of his tribalism and embrace God's missional heart. What do I mean by tribalism? So a tribal community exists for themselves and for self-preservation. They wanna make sure that they protect themselves from outsiders, um, usually people who are different from them, right? From those who have different beliefs, they have different politics, they have different values, right? They hoard God's blessings for themselves. They are like reservoirs instead of channels. The missional heart, however, focuses less on self-preservation and self-protection and more on self-sacrifice. The missional community is willing to sacrifice inconvenience and comfort and personal preference in order to spread God's love to those who need it. God's heart is a heart of compassion, especially for the lost, the last, 
in the least. You'll hear me say this over and over again. And he pours out his grace on us so we can extend that grace to those who need it. So a few final questions to ask ourselves. First, am I living for worm-eaten plants? Right? In other words, am I too focused on my comforts and the things that I enjoy, things that in the end don't really matter? Do I have misplaced love? That's the first one. Second, am I constantly aware of God's grace in my life? Do I consistently live a life of thankfulness? Or do I take for granted all the blessings that God has given me in my life? And third, do I have a heart of compassion for the lost, for the last, and for the least? So like Jonah, God is challenging us to let go of our tribalism and to embrace God's missional heart. Next week, I'll be closing out this series on Jonah, and we'll be looking at at the overarching, like one of the overarching themes of the whole book, just sort of like a summary of the whole book, which is the missio dei, it's a Latin phrase, it means the mission of God, okay? So let me explain what I mean, and I'll give you a little bit of a preview for next week. The missio dei, mission of God. So many times, um, as Christians, we make the wrong assumption that the primary activity of God is in the church. It is not. God's primary activity is in the world, and the church is God's instrument sent into the world to participate in his mission of redeeming and restoring and ushering in the kingdom of God. It's a difference between a church with a missions and outreach ministry and a church that is missional throughout. A church with a missions and outreach ministry sees missions and outreach as one activity alongside a whole host of other equally important activities. A missional church, on the other hand, focuses all of its activities around participation in God's missional heart for the world. I'm talking about God's missional, God's mission forming and informing everything that we do. A missional church uh, understands that its fundamental purpose is being rooted in God's mission to restore and heal creation and to call people into a reconciled relationship with God. A missional church believes in making disciple makers and then sending them out into the harvest. They understand that true spiritual growth comes not just from hearing sermons and taking classes, but ultimately in serving and reaching and discipling people who are far away from God. It is a shift from an attractional model of doing church, right? The attractional model, which has dominated the church in the West for the past several decades, um, it seeks to reach out into the culture and draw people into the church. The problem is our culture is becoming increasingly post-Christian. And this model is losing its effectiveness. 
Right? So while there's nothing wrong with attracting people to participate in various ministries and things at the church, um, the missional church is more concerned about equipping and sending people in the church out into the world rather than necessarily getting the people in the world to just come to church. It is a shift from a come and see to a go and be. A missional church instead is actively moving into its community to embody and to incarnate the word, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the very life of Jesus Christ himself into every nook and cranny. What does this look like? I think uh, Eugene Peterson, in his uh, rendering of John 1.14, in the message, paraphrase, um, I think does a really good job of explaining this. John 1.14, he says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Okay, so we'll talk more next week about what we can learn from Jonah about what this looks like, God's missional heart, that this would be a place of healing and equipping and discipling so that we can then go out and be salt and light and be the presence of God in the places in our community that right now uh, the devil is very present, okay? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your abundant grace that you've poured out on our lives. Lord, we confess that we've taken so much for granted and we ask you to forgive us. Lord, help us to extend that grace to those who need it. Holy Spirit, give us a sensitivity to where you are leading us to show mercy and compassion and love to those who need it, especially the lost, the last, and the least. We pray, God, that truly the word would become flesh and blood and move into our neighborhoods. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.